You're listening to That Moment When, stories of specific and honest relational touch points that change a person's life. Brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible and CSB Podcast Network. My name is Richard Clark. Christina M. is a social worker, counselor, and host of the podcast, M. Between. On M. Between, Christina and her husband, Daniel M., discuss how to maintain a healthy faith and family with all of the humor and realness of a dinner table conversation. But things haven't always gone smoothly for Christina. Her life has been marked by a series of world-shattering moments that could have caused her to go looking for solutions in all the wrong places. In this episode, she explains how her drive to be known and valued and her desire for her father's presence in her life ultimately led her deeper into her heavenly father's presence. My deepest fear would be being alone and the fear of being unloved. It represents itself in many different ways. So my natural tendency to people please has really, I think, stemmed from that. It's like, oh, wow, you're shiny. (laughs) You give me good feelings. Let's go towards that. Maybe it's a thorn in my flesh where it's just my natural tendency to look to others for acceptance, to look to shiny things to make me feel good for a moment. I was raised in Canada by parents, uh, and I were raised about seven hours northwest of Rochester, New York. And they were immigrants that came from China to come to Canada for a better future. I was the second of two children. My brother was a joy and welcomed very much so. I was born five years later. My parents lived really close to my grandparents and there was a lot of um, I guess Asian culture in a way, like you just grow up together as a family and they were each other's support networks, both being immigrant families. My parents became Christians when my brother was two years old and they were really involved in the church on Sundays and they really wanted to pass down Christian values to us and it was for the better part of the seven years of my life I would say that it was picture perfect. My parents would probably say that it was really hard because they couldn't really make ends meet and it was just difficult to make money. Everything that they wanted to provide for their family because they did move to Canada to have a better future, they felt like they could not provide for us. In the beginning, I would say that my parents and I got along really well. What I didn't know was that my dad was working multiple jobs, and so he was quite frequently outside of the home. He would work a nine to five, you know, Monday through Friday, and then he would also work a second job on the weekends. My grandparents were very heavily involved, and so a lot of times I was spending the weekend, my brother and I were spending the weekend at my grandparents. Most Tuesdays, my dad had the afternoon off, 
and he would pick me up from school in Canada at the time. Kindergarten was only in the morning. And so he would pick me up from school and we would go to McDonald's and he would get me a Happy Meal. I'm not sure what he ate, but this is what I got, a Happy Meal, of course, with the toy. And then we would go to the Christian bookstore afterwards and he would buy me something, whether it be a tape or a stack of stickers or a book. And so he would go off and explore. And there was a little play area in the Christian bookstore. So I would pick what I want and then I would sit there and play with, you know, Fisher Price Noah's Ark or something like that. So that was, as I was saying, the first seven years of my life. Afterward, my mom and dad moved my brother and I uh, five hours away to a different city to Ottawa so that my dad and mom could help my dad's side of the family start a business and continue to run it. And it was a computer store and it was before Best Buy and all those different places. So it grew quite largely. And because of that, you have to invest more time. And so they were working 60 at 1.80 hours a week. And my brother and I raised ourselves. So you go from having in your mind an idealistic you have your parents there and your grandparents and your family all together to a point where it's like, oh, you move five hours away and then it's just your brother and yourself and your parents are off trying to work the hardest that they can. But you don't understand it as a kid. In the beginning, I remember like, sort of my dad being there. And then there was a long period of time where when he was working and he was so focused on that and so driven that I was not a part of his life and he was not a part of mine. I remember thinking, uh, you know, when you read the fairy tales as, as a child and as a young teen of who's gonna walk you down the aisle. And I remember being so distant and feeling unloved and so angry at my dad for not being there that I was like, no, there's no way he's gonna walk me down the aisle because that person is supposed to represent being there for you. And he wasn't there for me. What I knew before I was eight years old was a very different life where I really wasn't alone. I never felt alone. I always felt loved, safe, accepted. And then when we moved away and I lost that social network and my family network, that's really when I felt alone. There were videos about latchkey kids at school. <laughs> So that's what I was. I was, my brother and I were latchkey kids and we would have the keys probably around our necks tied with fancy string and we would get off the bus and we would open the door. I remember my parents would take us to Costco once a month and would let us buy all of the snacks that we wanted, the pizza pockets, the taquitos, all of that so that we could feed ourselves when we got home. We had whatever time that we wanted to do up until eight o'clock at night. And that's when my parents would come home and we would have dinner together. That was very important to our family that we would have dinner together and then it was time to get ready for bed. That's when church became very much uh, a Sunday Christian family thing to do. So it was more of our culture versus actual relationship. We would show up to Sunday and it was very much raise your hands, clap along, listen to the message, take notes, say hi to the pastor, come home for lunch, fry the pastor on what things that you did not agree with, or exalt the pastor in the way that 
they were agreeing with you. And then Sunday afternoon nap, and then Sunday evening, we would go back to church and we would do it all over again the next week. And come Monday morning, it was, everything was just back to whatever normal would be. And I really truly believe that's just, they didn't have time when you're trying to make ends meet when you are running a business that you don't want to sink because that's your livelihood. It becomes survival and that's what they did. They went to work and they came back. The church that we were attending had a dramatization called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And this was a drama that had come in and they were basically portraying and giving you pictures and dramas of what happens if you were to die tonight. And people, whether they believed in Christ or didn't, maybe they went through a car crash, you know, they got sick and then they appeared before God and God said, enter in good and faithful servant. Or the person portraying the devil would come and bring the people who did not believe in Christ down to down to hell, which in our church was where the orchestra pit was. And then they used people from our congregation. And I think that made it even more real. Like I still, I still remember what the devil looks like. And I was scared out of my mind. And so uh, that night I remember when they did the altar call, I ran. I ran down there because there was no way in the world that I would be caught in hell down in the orchestra pit. There's no way. I understood in a very eight-year-old mind way that Jesus was offering me fire insurance and I wanted it. So when I said the sinner's prayer, there was really no talk about grace and about mercy and about, yes, there was forgiveness, but sort of like an ulterior motive of like, hey, you have to come follow me or else you're gonna burn in hell. That time was, yes, I was scared, and but I did truly wanna follow God. And I wanted to be the best Christian there could be because that's sort of my personality in that way too. But in terms of being a quote unquote good Christian, goodness, I got the gold star. I could gamify it. I knew exactly how to look like the greatest Christian there is for whatever age child. And I could go back to my life in school and be whoever I wanted to be. I was doing exactly what I was supposed to do. So a list of rules, laws, I memorized the Bible. I did my quiet time. I didn't swear. I tried not to gossip. All of those rules and lists, but I didn't want to disappoint him. I did not want to disappoint God, did not want to hurt him, did not want to do anything that would cause him to look upon me in shame. And if I don't do what God wants me to do, if I don't obey everything that it says in the Bible, if I mess up, God, will you leave me? God, am I enough? Are you enough? The summer between grade eight and grade nine, my mom and dad took time off to drive me to a Christian camp that I was gonna stay for the week. Little to my knowledge that I know that the next day my dad was going to have a brain aneurysm at work. And so literally fell to the floor while he was talking to one of his coworkers, clinically dead for two minutes.
like his face turned blue. And thankfully, that uh, co-worker knew CPR and so did CPR on him and revived him as the ambulance came and took him away. So at that point, we didn't know what it was. I didn't had no idea. My mom talking to my grandparents decided not to tell me uh, because they knew that I would need to come back and they didn't want to do that to me. Also, my dad was in a critical state, so they didn't know what I would be coming back to. And so I stayed there for a week. In the third night after the sermon, I, for whatever reason, felt really called to go up and to be prayed for. And I had no idea what to be prayed for and just really felt like, I don't know, I just need prayer. And so the counselors prayed for me. I really felt like God was just saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. Everything's going to be okay. I love you. I love you. And everything's going to be okay. And when you're 13, that means, yeah, so that boys will like me. That's great. Or, or like, oh, this little tiff that you had with your with your friends, everything's going to be OK. And so after that night, I was like, great. Thank you, God. Thank you that you're going to take care of every burden that I have and that you love me. So the day that my parents were supposed to come pick me up, this was five days later, I saw my grandparents' car come to the cabin to pick me up. And I was so confused because remember, we live in opposite cities right now. They had driven to come get me. And at that time, my little cousin was there too, but nobody was saying anything. And I was so weirded out. Two hours into the drive, my little cousin, who's six years younger than me, says, your dad had a heart attack. We're going to the hospital. And I was like, what? And nobody would say anything. They're like, your mom's wants to be the one who explains it. So I remember from camp, we drive to the hospital, get out of the car. My mom comes and she tells me, like, your dad had a brain aneurysm. He's in critical condition. We don't know what's going to happen. And so she went back into the hospital and my grandparents took me home. And throughout the whole a 20 minute trip. It was that same God voice of, I love you, I love you, I love you, and everything's gonna be okay. And it just kept going over and over and over again. A few weeks later, we heard through having to do surgery that he had a 5% chance of living and a 3% chance of ever walking again. I just remember overhearing it and the same thing of like, everything's gonna be okay. That's when I truly believe that that's when I experienced God. And that was the turning point of, hey, you get to play Christianity all you want. You can do that. But when the rubber hits the road, when you have a choice to turn to God, to run far away from him, what are you gonna do? He made his presence so known to me and that comfort and that peace that I was like, there's no denying you. There is no denying you, God. And that's when I really believe that I trusted him with my whole life. Whereas before it was a game. It was what I what I could do to look good, not to, yes, to him, but really to others. That's really what I cared about. I cared about looking good to others. And if the benefit is looking good to God, then that's great. And then really the underlying is, as long as I have fire insurance, I'm okay. I can do whatever I want. When that no longer makes sense, when it's not just about fire insurance, when it's not just a game anymore, that's when you choose. And you really choose that where are you gonna put your trust in?
So he went through the surgery and it was successful. Thankfully, he lived and he he did walk. <laughs> he is walking. I truly believe, yeah, he did know God, but he didn't have to he didn't have to know God. Right. He was self-sufficient. If he worked hard enough, he could get what he wanted. And then he told me that when he was on the operating table, he had a vision where he saw that bright light and he could feel like his life was slipping away from him. And he said, God, I beg of you, please give me a second chance. Because before this time, I wasn't living for you. I was living for myself. But if you give me a second chance, I will tell everyone about your amazingness and I won't hold back and I will change my life. That light disappeared and that was revolutionary to me before uh, because him telling me represented the start of a relationship with him. Uh, he became a completely different person. We look back and thank God because thankfully, instead of moving further apart, we moved closer together. But if my parents had continued down the path of pursuing whatever the world could give them, I truly believe my brother and I would have just disappeared. I was sharing with my mom through different conversations of sort of the hidden life that I had uh, behind closed doors. And I remember I was practicing piano and she was talking to me about something and I just stopped and turned around at her and I was like, you have no say in my life because you're not there and I don't want to be a part of this like life anymore. And I remember her just being like shocked, like, oh my goodness, you're not happy. Like you're a happy go lucky one. And I think I had so much anger and resentment built up from thinking that my parents had taken me away from love, taking me away from comfort that I think I would have, I would have just left and try to fill that void with whatever I could. Last year, our, our family went through two car accidents back to back. And I had a pretty bad concussion from the first one. I couldn't podcast, I couldn't read, I couldn't wash dishes. And I remember begging God, like, you need to help me. You've forgotten about me. There's so much that I need to do. There's so much my family needs to do. We just started a new ministry. And that's when I realized that I was building my house on sand because everything was taken away from me. And I just remember him saying, Christina, am I enough? And my first answer was no. And then you kind of be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> You're not supposed to say no to God. He has to be everything, right? He is everything. But in my true heart of hearts, I was like, no, no, you're not. Because I want, I want, I want more. And then my concussion continued on for a few days and the same thing, Christina, am I enough? And I said, yes, but. And then the third time God asked me, Christina, am I enough? And I truly could say, God, if my concussion lasts forever, if nobody knows my name, if I am known as the woman who lies in bed, yeah, yeah, you're enough. 
I would say there's so many instances in my life where I was broken over and over again, and God showed me that he was enough, and I understood it, and I lived it out for a few months, maybe, maybe years, and then brokenness would happen again, and then God in his grace and mercy would just show me. Have I felt like sometimes he's abandoned me? Yeah. Have I felt like he's been too silent at times? Yeah. Have I felt like he has not been my defender? Yeah. But God in his grace has made himself known to me like so many times, so many, so many times that I know, I know who he is. That Moment When is hosted by Richard Clark, produced by Nick Thompson, edited by Kaylin Richardson, brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible and CSB Podcast Network. For more information, go to csbpodcastnetwork.com.